Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Before we start today, just a quick reminder that the second e-book associated with this podcast, The History of Ancient Greece, is now available on Amazon as a Kindle e-book. Its ASIN code is B00N5TG22M. It's available at $6.35. If you go to the website for this podcast, www.mythandhistory.podbean.com, you will find links to the US and UK Amazon stores where you can buy it. The first book, The Myths of Ancient Greece, is also available from Amazon. So, on with the chapter. Chapter 73, Parthians, Plague and Philosophy. In 161 AD, the Roman Empire found itself in a position it had never been in before. There wasn't just one emperor on the throne, there were two. The joint reign of the wise, studious, compassionate Marcus Aurelius and party boy Lucius Verus had begun. Almost as soon as the emperors got down to the business of running the empire, the first disaster happened. The Tiber burst its banks and flooded Rome. The emperors put considerable effort into helping with the relief efforts. Marcus, following the example set by his adopted father, paid for some of the regeneration from his own personal fortune. Later in 162, another disaster happened. This time, though, nobody knew that it was a disaster. It seemed like good news. Faustina gave birth to twins. One of these twins was given the name Lucius Aurelius Commodus, and 19 years later, as the only surviving son of Marcus Aurelius, he would begin his reign as probably the worst emperor Rome ever had. Marcus and Lucius left most of Antoninus's provincial governors in place, which meant that good people were still doing their jobs well. Unfortunately, one of the traditional enemies of Rome didn't see it that way. The Parthians were getting warlike on the eastern borders again, and the Parthian king, Volagarses III, decided that these two new emperors, who hadn't fought a single battle between them, were weak, it was time to make some trouble. As usual, they used the throne of Armenia as an excuse. Antoninus Pius had been very unhappy with Volagarses for breaking agreements, and the Parthian king waited until the old emperor was dead before starting his agitations. First, he invaded Armenia and put his own man on the throne. This was intended to provoke the Romans into attacking, and the eastern legions began to prepare for war under the governor of Cappadocia, Marcus Sedatius Severianus. Unfortunately, Severianus had a favourite mystic called Alexander, who he believed could tell the future. Alexander predicted that the legions would be successful if they attacked there and then, so Severianus led a legion over the border. The legion was cornered in the mountains and completely destroyed. Severianus committed suicide. It seems that Alexander was not too good at predicting the future. The Syrian legions joined in, but they were beaten too. The Romans had become unaccustomed to genuine threat and were worried. Two of their best legions were gone. The Parthians were on the border and the emperors were still in Rome. Everyone could see that this situation was not at all good. Marcus Aurelius, though, was about to get tough. He sent the governor of Britannia, Marcus Stadius Priscus, and lots of troops to Cappadocia. He then sent three legions to Syria. The preparations had begun, and the Parthians were about to be taught a lesson. 
Marcus decided that an emperor was needed to make sure the troops stayed loyal and to ensure victory. So, did he pack up and go? Did he get his finest campaigning gear out and march east? No, he sent party boy to deal with the Parthians. Lucius Ferrus and his colleagues took nearly a year to get to Antioch, though, because Lucius wanted to see all of the tourist places on the way. When he eventually got there, he had a party. Now, all this seems like it's leading up to a disaster for the Romans. Party boy leading an army in battle really seems like a bad idea. One thing Lucius Ferrus did well, though, was to find good people to do the work for him. Priscus and another general called Avidius Cassius, a personal friend of Marcus, were talented commanders. The new legions under Priscus retook the Armenian capital while Lucius cheered them on from the sidelines. Afterwards, he gave himself the title Armenicus to celebrate his triumph. In 164, the triumphant Lucius married Marcus's daughter Lucilla and went back to Antioch. The Romans were now well into their stride and were beating the Parthians well. Eventually the army, under Ovidius Cassius, took the capital Tessiphon and then the city of Medea. Lucius had another party and gave himself the names Parthicus, Maximus and Medeacus to celebrate these new triumphs he had achieved, or at least he had bravely watched. Volagarses decided enough was enough and gave the Romans a bit of Mesopotamia and all of Armenia, which Marcus organised into a full Roman province. So the Romans were still strong after all. The new emperors had proved they could manage a good battle, and everyone in Rome was very pleased. Caesar Lucius Aurelius Verus Augustus Armenicus Parthicus Maxicus Medeacus celebrated a huge triumph in Rome, with Marcus Aurelius, a little disapprovingly, celebrating with him. Marcus provided over a regime that recognised talent and did not simply reward a man because of his family. The emperor began some very simple, necessary and forward-thinking changes to the system, which allowed talented men to rise to the top of the military pile, no matter what their status was at birth. In the early empire, civil and military jobs were closely linked. The administration of a province would be also the commander of the armies based in that province. Under Hadrian, this changed a little, and the change accelerated when Marcus held the reins of power. The administration of the empire was put in the hands of senators and equestrians, and a formal cursus honorum type career path was introduced. Marcus treated the senate with due deference and consulted the senators on all major decisions. The ancient body was happy with this and didn't kick up too much of a fuss about the slowly changing military stru structure. The senate, though, didn't escape the reforms entirely. Previously, much of the Senate had been made up of men who were there because of their memberships of ancient families. Senators were senators because their fathers had been senators and their grandfathers had been senators. Marcus was keen to appoint men to the Senate because he believed they had the appropriate skills and experience. To be a senator, a citizen had to have a certain amount of wealth and this prevented many worthy men from joining their ranks. Marcus got round this by giving his own money to talented men so they could become senators. Good commanders were put in charge of the various armies. Many of these commanders were career soldiers who demonstrated their worth on the battlefield. Some of them were lowly born. The aforementioned Avidius Cassius, for example, was born to lowly provincials. Another general, Marcus Valerius Maximianus, was born an equestrian, but was given legionary commands and led special forces during the German wars of Marcus's later reign. 
These changes created a more professional and better organised army led by military men. When a strong popular leader like Marcus Aurelius was in charge, this was 100% positive. The improvements, though, came with a sting in the tail. The rank-and-file soldiers identified more with these battle-hardened generals than they had with the aristocratic commanders of previous times. They were often fiercely loyal to their leader. When a less popular emperor sat on the throne, there was a genuine threat of revolt. In later years, this threat would become a reality with sickening regularity. The army commanders soon became kingmakers. A man couldn't rule securely without the support of the men who commanded the strongest legions. This was one of the things that led to the 50-year period known as the crisis of the 3rd century. It took the organisational brilliance of the Emperor Diocletian to find an answer to this problem. But that is over a hundred years away. Back in 165, Lucius Ferris and the legions marched back to Rome, having defeated the Parthians. Devastatingly, though, it was not only triumph that they brought with them. They also carried a terrible sickness. Historians think that the disease, which is known as the Antonine Plague, was an outbreak of smallpox. This disease has now been completely wiped out by modern medicine, so nobody in the world gets it today. The Antonine Plague would cause the Romans a great deal of trouble over the next 20 years. It would kill over 5 million people, including, probably, the two men called Lucius Verus and Marcus Aurelius. For two years after the Parthian victories, the two emperors stayed in Rome, Marcus carefully running the empire and wisely judging legal disputes, and Lucius having a good time. Lucius had a tavern built in his house. Here he spent his evenings with his friends, gambling all night or eating and drinking, until he fell asleep and had to be carried to bed. He spent a lot of time at the Circus Maximus, cheering on the green team at the chariot races, or shouting for his favourite gladiator. Lucius Ferris, though, did take his duties seriously, and helped Marcus govern when required. The peaceful empire didn't last. In 166, a group of German tribes invaded Pannonia. In response, the governor called the tribes together and all agreed to respect the borders. The double-crossing barbarians didn't keep to the deal and later, in 167, they invaded Moesia. It wasn't always clear what their endgame was. Some seemed to want to settle in Roman lands and be assimilated into Roman society. Marcus allowed this where possible and many former German tribesmen joined the Roman legions. The two emperors decided they needed to go and run the new unwelcome war themselves, so they set off for the German border to get reports. In early 169, they were resting at Aquileia when Lucius became ill, probably with the Antonine Plague. After a few days, the emperor Lucius Verus died. He was 38 years old and had jointly ruled the empire and had a really good time for about seven years. A genuinely sad Marcus Aurelius travelled back to Rome with his adoptive brother's body and organised the funeral. Lucius Verus was buried in Hadrian's mausoleum alongside his real and adoptive fathers. Marcus then threw some really great games, just as Lucius would have wanted. The empire was back to having just one emperor again. The Germans didn't give Marcus any time to grieve for his brother emperor. While the funeral and games took place, they were still waging war on the empire. The Quadi and Marcomanni tribes were prominent in the Loose Confederation. Marcus travelled back to the Danube frontier and spent the next five years fighting. The barbarians crossed the Danube and besieged Aquileia. Marcus's policy was to isolate the two tribes from each other. 
He knew he'd be able to beat each tribe in battle separately, but was concerned about their joint strength. The Marcomannic king, Balamar, knew the emperor would be thinking this way and strove to bring the tribes closer to each other. He managed to get the two German tribes, and some smaller ones, to work together and successfully invade Pannonia. While fighting on the Danube frontier, the Roman army was hit by the plague. Marcus managed to raise two new legions to go and fight, and vowed to defeat the German barbarians once and for all. The war, though, wouldn't be quick. In fact, it would last for the rest of Marcus's life. While Marcus and his general Pompeianus were planning their campaign in 170, Balamar led 20,000 German troops into the province of Noricum. They fought the legions in their garrison and blew them away. Balamar then used these wonderful Roman roads and reached Aquileia. This would not be the last time that Roman engineering would be used against them by invading barbarian tribes. In later years, the Goths would find the Roman road network very useful indeed. An army sent to relieve Aquileia was badly beaten by Balamar's men. It took yet another army, led by Pompeianus and his assistant, Pertinax, remember his name because we'll meet him again, to defeat the German army. Marcus negotiated with the Jazigi tribe and the Quadi and persuaded them not to fight alongside the Marcomanni. He then defeated some of the smaller tribes. The emperor gathered up his fighting men and personally led the legions across the Danube and smashed the Marcomannic army. Unfortunately, this just made the Jazigis and the Quadi nervous and provoked them to attack again. The Jazigis were beaten, but the Quasi then sent troops to help. As usual, as soon as the battle was won and the war was over, it was back on again. Marcus decided the only way to win was to destroy the Jazigis and the Quadi completely, along with other tribes like the Sarmatians and the Chatai. Marcus Aurelius, the quiet philosopher-emperor, had turned himself into an excellent general and a great leader of men. He led an army himself and defeated the Jazigis and his general Pertinax defeated the Quadi. It was during the fighting with these two barbarian tribes that the gods seemed to smile on Marcus Aurelius at last. First, a dramatic lightning storm destroyed the Jazigis' siege weapons. This became known as the Lightning Miracle. At the same time, Pertinax and his men were low on drinking water and were becoming very thirsty and tired. Suddenly a huge rainstorm came and the grateful Romans drank the water and became stronger. With renewed vigour, they defeated the Quadi who slipped and fell in the mud. This became known as the Rain Miracle. Marcus was about to press forward and completely wipe out the tribes, when, on the face of it, a very odd thing happened. Avidius Cassius, the general who had helped win the war against the Parthians, had heard that Marcus was dead. He decided that he would seize power. This was the first example of the revolt malady we looked at earlier in this chapter, which would befall Rome many times in the future. Marcus, of course, was very much alive and had to travel to the east to defeat the rebellion. Before he got there, though, it was all over. Cassius was killed by soldiers loyal to Marcus as soon as it was known the emperor was very far from dead. Marcus, although furious with the idiot conspirators, was lenient. The extent of the punishment of the city of Antioch was the banning of all games. Marcus Aurelius was concerned by this conspiracy. If it was so easy to rise up in revolt just because there was a rumour flying around that the emperor was dead, then it was going to be complete chaos if he really was dead. He realised he needed a plan for the succession, just as Hadrian had done. Fortunately for Marcus, he had a son, 
and he began to prepare the boy for power. In an omen which seemed to have escaped everyone, Marcus's son Commodus shared his birthday with Caligula, and like Caligula became a mascot for the troops. As we shall see, Commodus had a lot more in common with Caligula than was good for the empire. Marcus raised his one surviving son to the rank of joint ruler in 177, although of course Marcus did all of the actual ruling. There was though no doubt who would be the next emperor. Marcus went back to Rome in 176 and had a magnificent column like that of Trajan constructed to commemorate his victories against the Germans. Like Trajan's column, the Aurelian column shows his victories in a big wrapping spiral. The most famous pictures on the column show the lightning miracle and the rain miracle. On top of the column was an equestrian statue of the emperor. Unusually, this statue survived the Christianisation of the empire because it was misidentified as Constantine. It was taken inside in the 1980s as pollution was destroying it. It's now in the museum on the Capitoline and is quite moving sight. Do go and see it if you get the chance. While he was fighting the Germans, Marcus Aurelius wrote one of the most famous books ever written by a monarch and one of the most well-known ancient philosophical texts. It's called The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. He wrote it not as a book but as a series of thoughts to help him live as a good man. Many of his musings have been used by other people to help them live well and he is frequently quoted. Everyone could do with a bit of his wisdom. We will look at the meditations in a little more detail in the next chapter. In 180, Marcus was well on his way to winning the war. He was considering going all the way and carving two more provinces north of the Danube from barbarian territory. They were to be called Sarmatia and Marcomania. He had to put his plans on hold though when he went down with a bad case of the Antonine Plague. As he grew more and more ill, he realised he might have to leave the completion of his German campaign to his son. Fervently he hoped the 19-year-old, who was with him on the Danube frontier, had learned enough to continue in his footsteps. In a few weeks we'll discover that he absolutely hadn't. I say in a few weeks because the next two chapters are going to take us through a slight detour. Next time we'll look very closely at the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. It's a great work and it merits a chapter of its own. After that we'll look at Roman maths and engineering and see how they contributed to the success of the empire. So, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.